Hello, this is William Fank of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. This evening we are going to present on the Gospel of John, part 32, and it's subtitled, Self-Sacrifice is the Ideal Sacrifice. I had chosen with this podcast that I usually don't talk about the images I choose for a podcast. I had chosen to display a portrayal of the sacrifice of Isaac by the 16th century Italian painter Domenicino for this program because Abraham's sacrifice was the ultimate sacrifice as he was willing to give up everything which he had been promised in order to please his God. But he was promised nothing additional in return. So his sacrifice was entirely selfless. In an ideal society, that is the sort of sacrifice which all white Christians should be willing to make for one another. If we chose to do so now, Perhaps that ideal society, which we could call the kingdom of heaven, would begin to develop before our very eyes. In our commentary on the first part of John chapter 12, titled Raising Cain, I had made an analogy of the fact that by raising Lazarus, Yahshua Christ had finally brought the wrath of his enemies to the point where they were compelled to act against him. As he himself had explained in John chapter 8 and elsewhere, his enemies being the children of the devil, by raising Lazarus, he had certainly also raised Cain. Now, as we also explained in that presentation, we are at the point where it is four days before the Passover upon which he was to be executed which is when he made his triumphal march into Jerusalem, as John had described here in verses 12 through 15. Then, in verses 17 and 18 of John chapter 12, he explained that the reason why the crowd had met Christ at the gates of the city and declared for him to be king, glorifying God, was because they knew that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So by doing that, his enemies were able to lay a capital charge against him before the Roman authorities, and the event had sealed his fate, which is something that he himself had already foreseen. So in verse 19, we read where John described the envy and anxiety of the Pharisees, and he wrote, Therefore the Pharisees said to themselves, or in regard to themselves. You see that you are not of any help. Behold, society goes off after him. By this, John explains the reason why they sought to kill him, because they were envious, and because by his wonderful deeds, their own pretense of authority over the people was threatened. So they were anxious to be rid of him, they had no care for the truth, nor for the people themselves, but only for their own pretense of authority, which provided for them a comfortable station in life. As we had also discussed when we reached this verse here in John 12, 
the Gospels of Matthew and Luke had next recorded Christ as having raised Cain once again, where he entered into the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the merchants, accusing them of having transformed a house of prayer into a den of thieves. Mark also records this event, and he records other things as well, and has it taking place the very next day after Yahshua had returned to spend the night in Bethany. John did not record it at all, but here he records a few things that the others did not. John did record a similar event in chapter 2 of his gospel. So this is at least the second time that Yahshua had done such a thing. Now, before we proceed, in order to help illustrate the fact that the scribes and Pharisees had no care for the people nor for the truth, but only for their own status and position, we should illustrate a few of the statements which Christ had made to them at this very same time, which are only found in the Gospel of Matthew. In that Gospel, immediately after his triumphal entry into the city in Matthew chapter 21. Christ had agitated his enemies in the temple, healed a number of the lame and the blind, and then after a brief confrontation with his adversaries, he returned to Bethany. The next morning, returning to Jerusalem, we see the withering of the fig tree, which serves as a type for the city, a prophetic type for the city. And he exclaimed, let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. So we all know that there can never be another good Jew. And then Matthew wrote, and presently the fig tree withered away. Entering Jerusalem and teaching in the temple, he addressed a multitude of the people, among which were his own disciples and his adversaries, as it is recorded throughout Matthew chapters 22 and 23. Among the things which he had said to them there, we read in Matthew chapter 23 from verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Well, they did until 70 AD, so this is certainly no longer in effect. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that you observe and do. But you do not do after their works, for they say and do not, just like today's priests. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do, for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at the feasts, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and ye are all brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters. For one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. 
So this is all they cared for, their station and authority, by which the people subject to them admired them, showed admiration for them. I had an experience many times as a child when I was sent to Roman Catholic Church, and after the church service, me and my friends would be hanging out outside or playing or getting into some mischief, and I'd see the priests come out and walk through the crowds, and they were virtually adored and swarmed by the crowds, all looking for a little bit of attention from this priest as if he were some sort of god. That made a negative impression on me from the time I was a child, and I didn't even realize why it made a negative impression. Today, we should not find it strange that if we compare these conditions to the clergies of the modern Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and even the Protestant churches, things have not changed at all, and the similarities are beyond striking. Now, these events we have described from Matthew must have taken place three days before the crucifixion as Christ is having said in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 26, that you know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. So the events described in Matthew, as well as the other Gospels, happened here at this point in the Gospel of John, within one day, although John omitted most of them choosing instead to record things which the other gospel writers did not include. For now, it is apparently still four days before the Passover, and John's narrative seems to indicate that Yahshua has only just come through the gates of the city after his triumphant entry into Jerusalem on the full of an ass, where we shall proceed with John chapter 12 at verse 20. And we won't get all the way through the, this chapter of John this evening. I tried to make it, but found it impossible. Now, there were some Greeks among those going up, meaning going up to the temple, that they may worship at the feast. Then these had come to Philippus, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Master, we wish to see Yahshua. I don't know why John had to remind us here that Philip was from Bethsaida of Galilee. Perhaps it gives us some insight into the identity of these Greeks, but we will never be able to guess that. The word for Greek is Hellenes, Hellenes in English. But among the Greeks, Hellenes did not distinguish a race. It was generally only a cultural and linguistic distinction, the Greek culture and language being shared by several tribes having distinct origins. They were all white, some of them were Semitic, and some of them were Gepetites. The Ionians and Pelasgians were in Greece long before either Dorians or Danans, yet all were considered to be Greek, 
while historically they were also often enemies of one another. Another example is found in the Canaanite woman of Matthew chapter 15, who was called both a Greek and a Syrophoenician by nation, as the King James Version has it, or genos, which is actually race in the Gospel of Mark. So we see that Greek was not her race, but Mark used a regional geographic term to attempt to describe her race, where Matthew used the more specific Hebrew term, Canaanite. So it is possible that these men, being Greeks in their mode of living, nevertheless may have been circumcised Judeans, for which reason the apostles were comfortable in their endeavor to introduce them to Christ. It is also apparent that for that reason, they were going up to the feast to worship in the first place. According to Paul's experiences, as they were recorded in, the, in Luke by Luke in the book of Acts, there were many Greeks in attendance in the synagogues of the Judeans, which he had visited throughout Anatolia, Macedonia, and Achaia. If these men were truly from of the Greek tribes and converts to Judaism who were not yet circumcised, they may have gone up to Jerusalem, but not into the temple or its courts. At that very time, there were warnings posted around the temple, which read, No foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. If they were circumcised, as the Pharisees were always seeking to make converts, something which Christ himself had attested, then they would be permitted to enter the temple, but perhaps it is unlikely that they would have been called Greeks. However, as John relates it here, it seems that Philip and Andrew did not know much about these men beyond their general appearance. From the time of Alexander, there were many Hellenized Jews, Hellenized Judeans, and in various ways that is evident throughout the New Testament, <coughs> excuse me, and certainly in the histories of Josephus. In Acts chapter 2, we see a list of men present at the first Christian Pentecost, only a few months after these events recorded here in John. And they are described as Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, and Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the regions of Libya, Libya throughout Cyrene, and the Romans who were sojourning, both Judeans and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear their speaking in our own tongues the magnificent things of Yahweh. So the apostles had typically described Judeans who had come from outside of Palestine by the nation in which they had sojourned. Parthians, Medes, Elamites. It is therefore quite likely that these men were Hellenized Judeans from Greece who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, as they were all commanded to do in the law. Now, in reference to these Greeks, John continues. Philip comes and speaks to Andrew. Andrew and Philip come and speak to Yahshua. 
Now, this may imply that Philip, and then Andrew with him, had been wary about bringing these men to Yahshua, whereby the argument that they were uncircumcised may be strengthened. But the same process may have occurred in any event, as it is evident that the apostles were often the channel through which outsiders had sought to meet Christ. Then Yahshua replies to them, Philip and Andrew, the hour has come that the Son of Man would be magnified. It seems that Christ had shown no interest in speaking to these Greeks, rather choosing to focus on what lay ahead for him in the days to come. In Matthew chapter 26, Yahshua had told his disciples around this same time that ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. But here he speaks to them allegorically, and perhaps even in reference to the Greeks who had sought to meet him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falling to the ground dies, it remains alone. But if it should die, it bears much fruit. If he had not died in the manner which he had, he would have been just another man whom others would claim had performed great deeds, which would ultimately have been disbelieved or forgotten. Being resurrected, like the grain of seed which sprout and bears fruit a thousandfold, his gospel was sure to persist and bear fruit among men. Now he elaborates on the meaning of his allegory. He loving his life loses it, and he hating his life in this society keeps it for eternal life. But hating life here is not merely surviving in misery, and hating life is not denial of necessity. One who survives in misery is of no help to his brethren, but rather he is more often a burden. Hating one's life here is to live for the sake of others and not for the enrichment or edifying of oneself. Hating one's life here is to neglect oneself, to neglect focusing on one's own interests and enrichment, and preferring instead to live for one's brethren by helping them. Verse 26, If one would serve me, he must follow me, and where I am, there also my servant shall be. If one would serve me, the Father shall honor him. In part four of our commentary on Paul's epistle to the Philippians, which was subtitled, Self-Sacrifice is the Way to Life, we summed up that epistle in the following manner. The overall theme of this epistle is the importance of individual self-sacrifice for the benefit of the body of Christ. That is what we had seen in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul discussed the possibility that he may even die for the testimony of the gospel which he had presented in Rome. And in that manner, he exhorted his readers to stand in one spirit, in one soul together, striving in the faith of the good message, in nothing being frightened by the opposition, 
which to them is an indication of destruction, but of your preservation. He, hating his life, keeps it eternally. He offered the Philippians to engage in the same struggle that he was involved in, in which Christ had also suffered, which was a struggle for the racial message of the gospel and the truth of God. As, for example, it is described in John chapters 3, 8, and 10. Then, in the second chapter of this epistle to the Philippians, Paul encouraged them to self-sacrifice, where he informed them that if there were any encouragement, consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affections and compassions among them, that they would be like-minded, having the same love, which in the first chapter Paul had described both of himself and Christ as having exhibited for them, and that having humility, they considered the needs of one another above themselves, which is the essence of brotherly love, self-sacrifice for the benefit of one's people. Paul then assured the Philippians that if they did all of those things without complaint, that they would in turn ensure their own mutual preservation. Saying these things, Paul had once again offered Christ himself as the ultimate example, and then the self-sacrifice of his fellow worker, Epaphroditus, whom Paul described as being sick nearly to the point of death in consequence of his work on behalf of the assembly. Then, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul explains the former life which he had abandoned for the sake of the gospel, for the benefit of the body of Christ. So this is what Paul wanted the Philippians to imitate, to also forsake their own lives for the sake of their brethren. And that's the end of my citation from my similarly themed presentation on Philippians chapter 3 several years ago. I don't remember how long ago, at least four probably. For the Christian, self-sacrifice on behalf of one's brethren and community is the ideal sacrifice. But this was the traditional Christian mode of thinking before the advent of Jewish pop culture, which developed throughout the urban centers of Christendom, actually, which has recently developed within the last 100, 150 years, perhaps. Here I will quote in part, and I've done this before, it's been a while. Here I will quote in part from what some Christians may consider to be an unlikely source to their own detriment. From Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, Volume 1, Chapter 2, Years of Study and Suffering in Vienna. I experienced a rare spirit of self-sacrifice and loyal comradeship among those men who demanded little from life and were content amid their modest surroundings. This was true especially of the older generation of workmen. Hitler's writing in the 1920s. 
And although these qualities were disappearing more and more in the younger generation, owing to the all-pervading influence of the big city, yet among the younger generation also there were many who were sound at the core and who were able to maintain themselves uncontaminated amid the sordid surroundings of their everyday existence. Again, I will quote from the same source, from Volume 1, Chapter 11, which was titled, Race and People. The animal lives only for itself, searching for food only when it feels hunger, and fighting only for the preservation of its own life. As long as the instinct for self-preservation manifests itself exclusively in such a way, there is no basis for the establishment of a community, not even the most primitive form of all, the most primitive form of a community, that is to say, the family. The society formed by the male with the female, where it goes beyond the mere conditions of mating, calls for the extension of the instinct of self-preservation since the readiness to fight for one's own ego has to be extended also to the mate. The male sometimes provides food for the female, but in most cases both parents provide food for the offspring. Almost always they are ready to protect and defend each other, so that here we find the first, although infinitely simple, manifestation of the spirit of sacrifice. As soon as this spirit extends beyond the narrow limits of the family, we have the conditions under which larger associations, communities, states, and finally even states can be formed. The lowest species of human beings give evidence of this quality only to a very small degree so that often they do not go beyond the formation of the family society. With an increasing readiness to place their immediate personal interests in the background, the capacity for organizing more extensive communities develops. The readiness to sacrifice one's personal work to work for others, and, if necessary, even one's life for others, shows its most highly developed form in the Aryan race. The greatness of the Aryan is not based on his intellectual powers, but rather on his willingness to devote all his faculties to the service of the community. Here the instinct for self-preservation has reached its noblest form, for the Aryan willingly subordinates his own ego to the common wheel, and when necessity calls, he will even sacrifice his own life for the community. Of course, that community, and Hitler felt the very same way, can only be an extended family of one's own people. The constructive powers of the Aryan, and that peculiar ability he has for the building up of a culture, are not grounded in his intellectual gifts alone. If that were so, they might only be destructive and could never have the ability to organize, for the later essentially depends on the readiness of the individual to renounce his own personal opinions and interests 
and to lay both at the service of the human group, meaning the community. By serving the common wheel, he receives his reward in return. I have selected these citations. in order to illustrate how one Christian man seeking to liberate his country from the poison of modernism promoted by Jewry had understood this basic Christian concept of the importance of self-sacrifice for the good of one's people. While we would only disagree with Hitler, that these ideals are not always exhibited in the Aryan race. Rather, they are exhibited by truly Christian communities within that race. Rather implicitly, here Hitler explains the struggle of the Aryan, or better, the Adamic man, to overcome the flesh, as Paul had described in Romans chapter 6, and to live in the spirit whereby the Adamic man follows the will of Yahweh his God, ceases from the sins of the flesh, and desires instead to serve his people. To cease from seeking the pleasures of this world and to turn to serving one's brethren is to become a servant of Christ and take an active part in building his kingdom. But to merely hate one's life by living in misery is also only self-centered rather than being centered on building the kingdom of God. As a digression, in Mein Kampf, Volume 2, Chapter 2, which is titled The State, Hitler wrote of how the German educational system had failed the people in the 19th century, leading up to the First Great War. The deliberate training of fine and noble traits of character in our schools today is almost negative. In the future, much more emphasis will have to be laid on this side of our educational work, Hitler's aspirations for when he came to power. This was written perhaps 10 years before then. Loyalty Self-sacrifice and discretion are virtues which a great nation must possess, and the teaching and development of these in the school is a more important matter than many other things now included in the curriculum. To make the children give up habits of complaining and whining and howling when they are hurt, etc., also belongs to this part of their training. If the educational system fails to teach the child at an early age to endure pain and injury without complaining, we cannot be surprised if at a later age, when the boy has grown to be the man and is, for example, in the trenches, the postal service is used for nothing else than to send home letters of weeping and complaint. If our youths, during their years in the primary schools, had had their minds crammed with a little less knowledge, and if instead they had been better taught how to be masters of themselves, it would have served us well during the years 1914 through 1918. This is the same dilemma we have faced for decades in the West, 
Children are punished for bullying, so children never learn how to stand up to bullies. Children are rewarded for failure, so children never learn the consequences of failure, and they never learn to strive for excellence since they are equally rewarded for mediocrity. This is the epitome of the indoctrination into cultural Marxism, which we have suffered. which can only end in disaster, and which explains the plight of our society today, a society which is imbued with whining, complaining, and litigation, a society of bitches, a society in which every experiment in deviance and perversion must also be tolerated or even approved by all. But for the Christian, the morality found in the commandments of Christ and the will to self-sacrifice must be the ideals. Where one sets aside one's own feelings, where one is humble enough not to be offended by words, but where one comes out from among the perverts and clings only to fellow Christians of his own people, seeking to nurture and edify them. That was the example set by the earliest Christians, the apostles of Christ and their disciples. Returning to John's account and these words of Christ concerning self-sacrifice, this is not the first time that the disciples of Christ had heard him say these things. In Mark chapter 8, while they were still in Galilee, we read, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In Luke chapter 9, upon the testimony of Peter that Yahshua was the Christ, he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gains the whole world, and loses himself, or is cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Losing one's life is not necessarily dying, although for some of us that may be necessary. Rather, losing one's life is a giving up of one's own ambitions and aspirations in exchange for activities where one may better serve one's brethren. All men have to pay their debts and house and feed their families, as Paul had said in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But if any man provides not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. But above and beyond fulfilling those primary responsibilities, a man should be concerned for his wider Christian community, 
being willing to sacrifice himself and his personal interests on account of them all. Christ did not die solely for the Israelites of Nazareth or even of Galilee, and neither did Paul of Tarsus labor solely for his brethren in Judea or Cilicia. We see the children of Israel spoken of collectively as the servant of Yahweh in a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 49, which also forebodes the Christ. This is sort of like a dual prophecy. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from afar. Yahweh has called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother has he made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand has he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver has he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel in whom I will be glorified. So collectively, Israel is the servant of God. And this is in other places in Isaiah as well. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with Yahweh and my work with my God. And now saith Yahweh did form me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. This is where the prophecy gets messianic, right? <laughs> Though Israel be not gathered, they are in captivity. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. So here, in this capacity, the Messiah is a servant of God. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the nations that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors to a servant of rulers. Christ is a servant to those who shall justly rule the world, his people Israel. That's why he's called a servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of Yahweh, that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith Yahweh, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all the high places. So there is no discrepancy here, as these words may apply to both Jacob collectively and to Christ more specifically as he is the Redeemer, but he is also the firstborn among many brethren, as Paul had explained in Romans chapter 9. So Christ died on behalf of his people. Christ was chosen to raise up the tribes of Israel, which were lost in the ancient captivities. 
and it is the destiny of all of the children of Israel to serve Yahweh their God by caring for and serving one another. So we read in Revelation chapter 22, in the description of the city of God, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, the twelve tribes, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Ultimately, all of the children of Israel shall serve Yahweh their God by serving one another, dedicating their lives to their people as Christ had done, which in turn builds his kingdom. In another place, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 9, Christ had told his disciples, If any man desires to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. He's not saying that because you desire to be first, you'll be last. But what he's saying is that if you do desire to be first, you have to make yourself last and servant of all. He, having made the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of his people, has become first of all. Christians are therefore challenged to serve their brethren in a like manner if they themselves desire a similar reward. So describing how he had conducted his own ministry, Paul of Tarsus wrote, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain. In other words, Christians should strive as if there were only one prize, earnestly working to both attain and establish the kingdom of heaven. This is done only by serving one's brethren. There's no other recipe in Scripture. According to what we have just seen in Isaiah, Christ was called from the bowels of his mother to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. And now he acknowledges the fact that he must complete that mission, which was the very purpose of his having come into the world in the first place. In verse 27 of John chapter 12, if after all that you probably forgot where we were. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this reason have I come to this hour. This passage supports our assertion that in the Garden of Gethsemane, as it is described in Matthew chapter 26, where Christ had prayed, he was praying not for himself, but as an example to men, where he said, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. Here he shows that he certainly did know that he must go through this trial 
because it is the very reason for which he had come into the world. Therefore, the cup could not be removed, as he said in our translation of the final clause, but not as I desire, rather as you do. He was making an example that the desires and feelings of man cannot change the will of God. He continues in verse 28, of which we will present the first clause. Father, magnify your name. The Codex Beze has a peculiar embellishment for this first clause of verse 28. Father, magnify your name in the honor which it had by you before the society came into being. The Codex Vaticanus has this part of verse 28 to read, Father, magnify my name. But it seems that Christ was expecting his glorification to result in the glorification of Yahweh, God the Father, that he would be magnified in the gospel and in the eyes of his people by his having magnified the Son through the resurrection. So we read in John chapter 6, Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straight away, or immediately, glorify him. Of course, Son and Father are one and the same, but the earthly is only an image of the heavenly. The words of Christ here in John chapter 12 evoke those of the sixth psalm, Psalm 6. O Yahweh, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Yahweh, for I am weak. O Yahweh, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. But thou, O Yahweh, how long? Return, O Yahweh, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? If Christ is resurrected, God is glorified. I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of the grief. It waxes old because of all mine enemies. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. For Yahweh has heard the voice of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Of course, Christ would indeed overcome his enemies and put them to shame by emerging from the grave after they had put him to death. Continuing with the latter portion of verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven. I have both magnified and again I shall magnify it. Apparently this means that Yahweh's name had already been magnified in Christ and would be further magnified in the events to come. But the crowd was divided. Therefore the crowd which stood, and having heard it, said, Thunder has come. Others said, A messenger spoke to him.
Some of the people perceived the voice to have come from a messenger or angel, while many of the people did not understand the voice at all. And perhaps they had no inherent ability to hear it, which may be apparent when we read the response of Christ. Yahshua replied and said, Not on account of me has this voice come, but on account of you. So evidently, it is indeed fair to imagine that the voice had come only on account of those who were able to hear it. For those who could not understand the voice, but only thought that they had heard thunder, it cannot be said that the voice had come on account of them, on account of those who did not hear what it had said, because they could not understand it. By this we may see that where Christ had said, My sheep hear my voice, the crowd was divided for reason that they were not all of his sheep. Later, as it is recorded in John chapter 18, Christ would tell Pilate, To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Now he speaks in regard to his enemies in verse 31. Now judgment is of this society. Now the ruler of this society shall be cast out. And if I am lifted up from this earth, I shall draw all to myself. All who? All of dispersed Israel. He was lifted up from the earth and... All Europeans and whites in the areas adjacent to Europe had become Christians within 300 years. So how did, and that there are copies of John that are known by archaeologists to have existed long before Rome accepted Christianity. How did Christ know that in advance if he was not God? How did he know? What a bold statement it is. I shall draw all unto myself. And if all of Europe wasn't Christian within a few hundred years, he would have looked like a fool. Maybe today we should all be pagans. But we could see the truth of this. We could see the profound way in which, was, in which this was fulfilled. And we can know that it's true and that he must be God. The ruler of this society seems to be a collective phrase. In the King James Version, it is translated as prince of this world. Paul of Tarsus referred to them in the singular. But evidently, meant to describe a collective singular, where he wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that you should not be deceived by anyone in any way because if apostasy had not come first and the man of lawlessness been revealed, the son of destruction, the children of the devil, the children of Esau, the vessels of destruction in Romans chapter 9, the synagogue of Satan, in 
Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And the man of lawlessness been revealed, the son of destruction, he who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. And so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh. Paul had written his letters to the Thessalonians, the earliest of all the surviving epistles we have, probably in the early 40s A.D. He who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. And so he is seated in a temple of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a god. The man of lawlessness was revealed when the rulers of Judea had Christ executed. So Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Now we speak wisdom among the accomplished, or perhaps the perfected. But wisdom not of this age, nor of those governing this age, who are being done away with. They're all going to the lake of fire. Rather, we speak wisdom of Yahweh that had been hidden in a mystery, which Yahweh had predetermined before the ages for our honor, which not one of the governors of this age, that's the term translated in the King James as princes of this world, which not one of the governors of this age has known. Since if they had known, they would not have crucified the authority of that honor, meaning Christ himself. In the King James Version, the phrase is translated here as those governing this age and governors of this age are also translated princes of this world, where it is more evident that Paul was referring to the same people to whom Christ refers here, where he exclaimed, Now the ruler of this society, or prince of this world in the King James Version, shall be cast out. There are different levels of abstraction among the reasons for which Christ had to die at the hands of his enemies. Of course, there was the fulfillment of the many prophecies concerning that same thing. But the prophecies by themselves do not explain all of the reasons. Unless we go all the way back to Genesis and understand Genesis in harmony with the Revelation and the epistles of the apostles. First and foremost, Christ was to release the children of Israel from the judgments of the law, as he was Yahweh incarnate so that they could be reconciled to him. Therefore, upon his having died as a man, the children of Israel were no longer subject to condemnation under the penalties for sin in the law, which Paul had explained in Romans chapter 7. I should say, perhaps, in the manner which Paul had explained in Romans chapter 7. This fact is also established in the opening chapters of the prophet Hosea, in Messianic prophecies in Isaiah chapters 49, 61, and 62, and in the closing chapters of the Revelation. Ultimately, Yahweh, being the husband of Israel, he also had to take responsibility for the sins of his wife and his children. Note that this is in contrast to Adam, who tried to put the responsibility onto his wife. Aside from that aspect of his sacrifice, when Adam transgressed, 
He failed his commission to have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. That would include serpents, devils, niggers. Of course, Yahweh God had given him that commission. He had created him to fulfill it. And ultimately, God cannot fail. So in Christ, Adam shall ultimately prevail. Two scriptures are most relevant in relation to this. The first is from the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2. For God created man to be immortal. This might be the tenth time that I've quoted this passage in this commentary on John. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil, death came into the world. The other is in 1 John chapter 3. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Yahweh God, dying at the hand of his enemies, redeems his children from the judgments of the law and has every right to avenge his enemies according to the law, something which the children of Israel had failed to do when they were so instructed to begin in the land of Canaan. Then when Adam accepted Eve, by necessity he accepted Cain, who was not his natural son. Cain, being the eldest son, therefore had a claim on Adam's inheritance, and his progeny therefore became the princes of this world, which Christ acknowledges here and elsewhere in the gospel. And that is also how Paul identified the adversaries of Christ in his epistles. This is how, in Matthew chapter 4, and in Luke chapter 4, a devil was able to claim to have authority over the kingdoms of the world, where he said that they were delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. To whomsoever I will, or to whomsoever I desire, I will give it. But the enemies of Christ, having committed the greatest of sins, which is deicide, the killing of God himself, they and all those who agree with them have judged and condemned themselves. Christ is the root and branch on the tree of life who came to destroy the works of the devil with the purpose of restoring Adam to the position for which he was originally created. Here, John focuses on the more literal aspect of his words, where Christ had said, and if I am lifted up from this earth, I shall draw all to myself. And he explains. Now he said this signifying what sort of death he was about to die. The words lifted up are a literal translation of the Greek word, which I loathe to try to pronounce. Hoopsao, hoopsao, it's an omnicron, a short O followed by a, an omega, which is a long O. I'll just say hoopso, which is literally to lift high or to raise up. The Roman method of execution was crucifixion, so his words describe that means of death. A synonym 
a hero, hiero, the word from which we have our British English arrow relating to flight and air, which is also to raise up, is away with in the King James Version of John chapter 19, verse 15, where the people cried out to Pilate concerning Christ, away with him, away with him, crucify him. The word crucify in that passage is from a word meaning to stake. So here John infers that hoopso is a synonym for the act of crucifixion. Now John describes the reaction of the crowd, which he which knew what he meant when he said he would be lifted up, although he had not mentioned crucifixion explicitly. So hoopso must have been a synonym for the act of crucifixion. Then the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the law that the Christ abides forever. How do you say that it is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The 3rd century papyrus, P75, wants the final clause, Who is this Son of Man? I am almost willing to follow that version, that manuscript, and leave it out. Because the people certainly knew what he meant by Son of Man. As we discussed at length early, earlier in this commentary on the Gospel of John, the promised son is a subject of the second psalm. I would declare the decree, Yahweh has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Perhaps heathen there would be better translated nations. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Because of this language, this son was also properly interpreted to be the son of man in Daniel. And the phrase also often appears in First Enoch. So the people were evidently repeating an interpretation of prophecy, which informs us that when the Son of Man comes, he would assume the office of king over the world and rule forever, which we find in Daniel chapter 2. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and the kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Then again we read in the 21st Psalm, The king shall joy in thy strength, O Yahweh. And in thy salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice! Thou hast given him his heart's desire, and hast not withheld the request of his lips. For thou prevents him with the blessings of goodness, thou sets a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked life of thee, and thou gave it to him, 
even length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him, for thou hast made him most blessed forever. Thou hast made him exceedingly glad with thy countenance. For the king trusts in Yahweh, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies. Thy right hand shall find out those that hate me. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. Yahweh shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. So the people had correctly anticipated that Christ was the Messiah, but they expected these things to be fulfilled forthwith. They had just declared for him to be king earlier this same day as they met him at the gates of Jerusalem and exclaimed, Blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. They expected their declaration to manifest itself at that very time. However, the people had also neglected to consider Daniel chapter 9, where it says that after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. According to Daniel, the Messiah would be cut off and then Jerusalem would be destroyed. In his prayers just before his execution, Christ had described his coming trial as a cup. And in the 116th Psalm we read, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows unto Yahweh now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints. So after that cutting off had happened, even the apostles continued to hold this anticipation that after Christ was risen, that he would assume his prophecy throne immediately, where in Acts chapter 1 they had asked him, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom again to Israel? And there he answered, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Ostensibly, the Jews took advantage of the misunderstandings of the people to facilitate their denial that Yahshua is the Messiah. This anticipation of a king, of a Messiah king, was more widespread than even the Gospels attest. In other commentaries here at Christagenia, such as a presentation titled, What are the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we made here in May of 2012, and I actually remember that presentation like it was yesterday, we explained that in the War Scroll, which is an apocalyptic document found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was expected the appearance of the Messiah who would lead his people to victory over the Romans in their time. As we had explained, there was a fourth large sect in Judea, that of Judas the Galilean, which Josephus said was noted for the refusal to heed any authority but God.
and also for inspiring revolt from Rome. Josephus describes them in Antiquities, Book 18. This is in such agreement with the Qumran sect's apocalyptic documents that this sect is as good a candidate for Qumran, it's actually a better candidate for Qumran, than the Essenes, who were probably or almost certainly not the authors of these Dead Sea Scrolls. A major example, I also said in that same presentation, a major example of the prophetic writings found among the Dead Sea Scrolls is the War Scroll. The War Scroll found in the scrolls, which are numbered 4Q491 through 4Q497, and some other Qumran scrolls, were peculiar to the Qumran sect. It was written by a vain and false prophet who described a grand apocalyptic scenario depicting a final battle between the remnant of Israel in Palestine and the Empire of the Kittim, which was the name that the sect gave to the Romans. Kittim was one of the Jepetite tribes that lived in the Isles of the Sea. So the Qumran sect called the Roman Empire the Empire of the Kittim. And also sometimes the Empire of Belial. This battle was to end with the aggrandizement of the remnant of Israel in Palestine, which they saw as their own sect, and with the fall and destruction of Rome. The sect interpreted parts of Isaiah chapter 10 in this same manner. Since the Qumran sect seemed to know nothing of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD, and even mentions the city on occasion, the war scroll requires a dating for the Qumran sect somewhere between Pompey's conquest of Judea, where it was subjected to Rome, and the revolt from Rome beginning about 65 AD, which resulted in Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD, a period of about 132 years from 72 BC to 65 AD, or from 67 BC to 65 AD. Since the scrolls lack mention of any contemporary historical figures or specific historic events, I know nothing by nothing by which the scrolls can be dated more precisely. According to the narrative in Josephus, the original revolt of Judas the Galilean against the Romans was about 6 AD, so it is quite likely that the war scroll, or at least the sentiments which it expressed, certainly did exist by the time of the ministry of Christ, beginning in 28 AD. A large portion of the people of Judea must have held this same messianic fervor, as the nation was oppressed by the Romans, suffered from the corrupt leaders and temple authorities which the Romans had been appointing. And we see that before they met Christ, as John explains in chapter 1 of his gospel, the men who would become his apostles were already expecting a Messiah, 
as was the Samaritan woman at the well. And the Magi had announced the same thing in Jerusalem shortly after his birth. All of this is crucial to a proper understanding of the anxiety which was reflected by those who sought to kill Christ here at the end of his ministry. This messianic fervor had been around for several decades, and these men knew that if it exploded, it would end their station and and standing in, in the kingdom. But to fulfill scripture completely, the Messiah had to be cut off. Israel had to be freed from the judgments of the law in order to be reconciled to Yahweh and Christ. And even in spite of that, the seven times of punishment which had been decreed also had to be fulfilled. So it would be a long time before Christ returns to assume his throne for himself. And for that, we continue to wait. So the passages relating to the eternal rule of Christ shall not be fulfilled until that time which is described in the final chapters of the Revelation, beginning with the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19, wherein are destroyed all of the goat nations in the manner described in Revelation chapter 20, as they surround the camp of the saints and the final destruction of the enemies of Yahweh as the city of God descends to earth. Of course, some of this is allegorical, but it certainly shall happen and is happening. Of course, the apostles did not have that message for some time after the resurrection and probably could not have deduced it all from the prophets. Until then, if we as Christians are to be perfected, we must understand his act of self sacrifice, and seek to follow him as best we can. When it is for the correct reasons, when it is for one's own people, self-sacrifice is the ideal sacrifice and the only legitimate sacrifice for Christians. In the verses which follow, Christ once again declares himself to be the light of the world which is another claim to kingship. And, Yahweh willing, we shall return soon to resume our commentary at that point. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.